I invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are going to continue in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1, and we'll read together verses 9 through 13. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. This is God's holy word for us, his people, this morning. God's word says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we ask now that you would bless not only the reading, but now especially the preaching of your word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, your light, that we might be instructed in your truth and in your wisdom. Write your truth upon our hearts, we ask, and let us receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're continuing with our Advent Christmas Epiphany series. And the four Sundays of Advent we have been looking at the prologue of John. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 in this series about Jesus, the light of the world. We began this series by looking at verses 1 through 5 in John 1. And we looked at the Word, the Word that was with God and the Word that was God in the beginning. Remember the, the English word, Word, is a translation of the Greek word logos. And so I'm going to use that word. If you, so if you, for your life, if you don't know any other Greek, you're going to know logos, Word. The word of the Father. We looked at this divine logos through whom God created all things. And that was the dawning of the light when God first spoke his word into life and shined his light into our darkness. Last week we looked at verses 6 through 9 and we learned about John the Baptist, the witness of the light. We learned that John's mission from, that God called him to was to bear witness to the light. And that meant for John pointing people to the glory of who Jesus is and to the glory of what Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus as the Son of God, that's who He is, but also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the glory of Jesus, the light that John is pointing people to bearing witness to. And from John's example, 
we learned how we also should bear witness to the light in our own lives by sharing our own testimony and sharing the testimony of who Jesus is so that others might see the light and come to believe and be saved. This week we pick up where we left off in verse 9. And we'll look together at verses 9 through 13. The fourth gospel has told us about the dawning of the light and the witness of the light. And in this next section, we will be told about the coming of the light into the world and into our history. This section is a continuation from verse 5, which was interrupted by this historical digression we looked at last week in verses 6 through 9. So, so 6 through 9 last week about John the witness, that's really more of a parenthetical comment by the author to give some historical context in this prologue. So the prologue pauses after verse 5 to look at John the witness, and now we pick back up with the original thought and we get back to the topic of this word, this divine logos. In our passage this morning, we're going to look at what happens to the light after it begins to shine into the darkness, which was mentioned in verse 5. This passage is about the coming of the light the arrival of the light into a dark world. The coming of the light in human history is met with a, a twofold response. When the light comes into the world, some receive it and others reject it. Those who receive it come into the light and those who reject it remain in darkness. And that is the history of the light that John crunches down in just a couple of statements in verses 9 through 13. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look first at this history of the Word, the history of the light, and then we'll consider at the end what it means for us to receive the light when Jesus shines upon us. So that's where we're going. Let's start, point one this morning, the history of of the light. <clears throat> Verse 9 of our passage is the transition point from the comment about John the witness back to verses 1 through 5. So notice how verse 9 picks up the thought of verse 5. Verse 9 says, the true light, not John the witness, he wasn't the true light, he came to bear witness to the light, but the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So what's the true light? It's the one that is giving light to everybody, to all people, to all human beings. It's the light that shines on all humanity, the light that enlightens every person, all people. And what does it mean? to give light to everyone. Well, this is where it connects back to verses 1 through 5. So look back at verse 4. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, the Logos both animates and illuminates all people. God, through his word, gives us life and gives us light 
God gives us life by making us in His image and likeness. And that includes not only our physical bodily life with our five senses that enable us to experience creation, but it also means that God gives us a living, rational soul with spiritual senses that enable us to experience God. We are made in His image Because we, of all other creatures, are able to enter into a personal relationship with God. God knows your cat and your dog. God knows your pets or your horse or whatever pets you have. God knows the... He he knows animals. He knows clouds and plants. God knows His creation, but He doesn't have a relationship. An I-thou, person-to-person relationship with anything else on earth, except you guys. (laughs) And part of what it means that he gives us life and makes us in his image is so that we can look like him in the world. We are personal, thinking, living selves that can have a person-to-person relationship with God. He gives us life, and that life is not just our physical bodily life, which we have in common with anything, any other biological thing that's alive on the earth, but we also have this spiritual side of us, this soul that is equipped with what we need to interact with God, to know God. Aristotle defined human beings as, I think, I think he, the way he said this was, political animals. Well, I don't, really, I don't care much about politics. Political animals. Thinking beings. But Christians say, actually, we should define human beings as praying animals. We are the kinds of creatures that are able to pray. Nothing else can pray. But we can pray. Because we're made to be in a relationship with God. He gives us life so that we're able to experience each other in creation but also able to experience him and that's the main reason you were made is for him god's life-giving logos doesn't just give us life but also shines light upon all people to give each of us the light of the knowledge of god so in other words we all have minds equipped with reason and intellect that enable us to know God, to be in relationship with God, and to receive His light when it shines upon us. You have eyes so you can see physical light. You have a mind so you can see God's light. Verse 9 also says that the true light doesn't just give light to everyone, but the true light was coming into the world. It was on the move, coming into the world. What does it mean that the true light was coming into the world? Here's where we look back to verse 5. First part of verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness. The light shines into the darkness. God's word shines God's eternal light upon all humanity. The word proceeds from the mouth of God and descends from heaven into the world like the light of the sun shining down upon the earth. This is the light of divine 
revelation. The light of divine revelation. That's what God's Word does. It reveals God to us. That's why He speaks it. To reveal Himself to us. God, by His Word, speaks His truth and His will and His ways to us. The light of divine revelation is what gives us something to grasp with our minds. Divine revelation gives us something to know. And if God didn't speak to us and didn't show Himself to us and didn't reveal Himself to us, you wouldn't even know He was there. You'd have no access. You'd just be in the dark about Him. You wouldn't know who He is. You wouldn't know that He exists. You wouldn't know anything about Him. Because we don't just have this automatic access to God. We only know what He tells us. William Tyndale said, God is nothing but His Word. Meaning you don't know anything about God unless He reveals it. He gives us this privileged access to know who He is. He opens His mouth and He tells us who He is. That's the light shining so that we can know Him. It's an invitation to know who He is. It's an extension of a relationship with us where we can see the light and know who He is. This light that He shines upon all humanity is the light of His revelation. And this revelation comes in two forms. And in theology, we call these general revelation and special revelation. General and special. General revelation is universally accessible to every person. Why is that? Because it's mediated through creation. So if you live in creation, and you have to because you're a creature too, if you just exist in the world, you have access to creation. And creation is mediating knowledge of God. It's shining light from God all the time. And it is available to every person. Special revelation is different. Special revelation is only given to certain groups of people, sometimes just individuals as you read the Bible. Special revelation is mediated through particular encounters with God. And so it's limited to the people who have those encounters. And God shows up and talks to Moses in a burning book. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Ruthie, have you had any burning bush experiences? Have you ever seen a bush burning? And you know, So like if this caught fire and started talking to us, that'd be pretty weird. Right? Not everybody has a burning bush moment. Not everybody gets knocked off their horse on the way to Damascus like Saul, who, became, you know, who becomes Paul. Not everybody has these unique experiences with God that happen in the Bible where divine revelation is given in a special, limited, particular way. There's information that you can't get anywhere else besides this special revelation. So general revelation is general because it's available to everybody, but it's also general in the sense that it's not that specific. It doesn't get you to the details. Special revelation gives you the details. And the classic example of this is Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19, listen to this language about creation speaking to us. That's the word giving us general revelation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare. That's word language. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. That's light. 
There is no speech, no language, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This is general revelation. But then Psalm 19 switches to special revelation in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And it keeps going like that. So in Psalm 19, you've got the general revelation, God speaking to us, His light through creation. And then you have... And then you have His general, special revelation, which comes here specifically... Through his word. Through his word. You can think of the Bible as an inspired record of special revelation. And then you can also have an encounter with this word where God speaks to you. You can encounter him through this revelation as well. So this is how the light shines upon all people. But there's a problem. There's a problem. This is all well and good. The light shines. We can know who God is. Great. But the problem is at the end of verse 5. Yes, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And remember what we said last time, that that word for overcome has a double meaning. It can mean overcome in the sense of defeating something, but it also means to grasp, meaning to to understand. The darkness has not grasped the light, has not understood the light because we are in darkness. Because we are shrouded in the darkness of sin, we reject the light when it shines on us. And that's what John goes on to say in verse 10 of our text. The true light was coming into the world, but then verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. The light of general revelation shines on all people in all the world, and the world still does not know the Lord. The world fails to know God's Word, and they reject God Himself. This is why the nations have wandered off into the darkness, and why they practice polytheism and every kind of pagan idolatry and immorality. As Paul vividly explains in Romans 1, 18-25. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, but rather they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they started worshiping creatures, images. And the number one image they started worshiping was the one in the mirror. So the nations go astray in their darkness. However, as both Paul will say in Romans and as John says here, In the prologue, this problem is not limited to those pagan nations out there. It's a problem with the nation of Israel as well. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. God's word came down to his own domain to Israel, to the Jewish people, where the Word belonged. And even His own people rejected Him. Remember that for John, God's Word and His wisdom have merged into the same figure. 
So that what's true of the word is true of wisdom, and what's true of wisdom is true of the word. They were kind of two separate figures in the Old Testament, but by John's day, they've sort of merged, and they've taken on the same roles. And so as John says this in verse 11, it's possible that he may have in mind the lament of this figure, Lady Wisdom, from the book of Proverbs as he writes down verse 11. Listen to Proverbs 1 and listen to this, to what it says about wisdom and how wisdom comes to Israel and what happens. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. I have called and you refused to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. You have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord... Because they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. This is God's wisdom word crying out to Israel, listen to me. He comes to his own and his own will not receive him. And that's the main experience that the word has when it comes into the world. People love darkness rather than light, and they refuse to come to it. But John goes on to say, look, not everybody rejected God's wisdom word. There were those who did receive God's wisdom word, and they gained the life that only that wisdom word can offer. John describes those who received God's wisdom word and who committed to follow it here in verses 12 and 13. And he says that these people who received the light, they became the children of God. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So that's the history of the word. That's the history of the light as it comes into the world. And you can just read your Old Testament and watch this history unfold. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this process playing out. The nations reject God in Genesis and go their own way. God raises up Israel as his special people. He sends them his word through prophets over and over and over again. And some receive it and others reject it. And this process continues right up until verse 14 to the word made flesh. So notice this progression in the history of the light, the history of the word in the world. It goes from the most general to the most particular, the most universal to the most specific. The word comes to all men, shines upon all men. Then it narrows and the word comes especially to Israel to the Jewish people. And then it narrows even more to one specific Jewish man. <laughs> so the word comes as light to everybody, then it comes as God's prophetic word to Israel, and then his word shows up in person, incarnate as a Jewish man, the man Jesus. And here, here is the deep truth 
underneath this passage, underneath this history of the Word in the world from Genesis up to the time of the Incarnation. Here's the deep truth underneath all that. Because Jesus is the incarnation of the Word, the history of Jesus in John mirrors the history of the Word in the world. The Word goes through this process of shining light, and some receive it, and some reject it. Then the Word becomes incarnate as Jesus, and then the life of Jesus is a repeat of that same process. Where Jesus comes to his own, and his own people do not receive him. He also is rejected. The history of the word plays itself out, mirrored in the history of Jesus. And you can see this in John's gospel, because Jesus speaks to his Jewish brethren, his fellow Jews, as the Logos himself. Jesus speaks as God's Word. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, the light is among you for a little while longer, Jesus says. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. To all who received him, they became the children of God, the sons of light. I have come into the world as light, Jesus says, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's the history of the word mirrored in the history of Jesus, who is the word incarnate the light of the world. Now, as we move into our final point this morning, I want us to zero in on verses 12 and 13 and draw some lessons for ourselves. I want us to look at verses 12 through 13 and consider what it means to receive the light when it shines upon us. uh, John says here that the result of receiving the light is that we become children of God. And what I want us to do now is to think about how this happens and what it means for you to be God's child. And that's how we'll wrap it up this morning. So first, how does it happen? How do you become a child of God? Well, think about the contrast here. In verse 13, in verses 12 and 13, everybody who believes becomes a child of God. But in verse 14, Jesus is the child of God. The child of God. The Son of God. And the way Jesus became the Son of God is by being born of the Virgin Mary, begotten by the Father in the womb of Mary. Okay, that's not how you are a child of God. And if you're not sure, ask your mom. <laughs> ask your parents. You know, am I virgin born? <laughs> and they'll, then they'll tell you, no, right? They'll say no. <laughs> no, you weren't. None of us are. But we are true children of God. And that tells us that what Jesus is by nature, we get to become by grace. 
That's the amazing, amazing thing. How does this happen? John says, we receive the light by faith in verse 12, by believing in the name of Jesus. Now, when it says believing in his name, that is an expression that means to pledge your reliance on and your allegiance to the one who bears that name. There's a scene in the historian, first century Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus is leading the rebel forces in Galilee against the invading Roman army. And Josephus' job is to defend the great city of Sepphoris, which is four miles from Nazareth. First century, about 30 years after Jesus is crucified and raised. And he's there trying to recruit these brigands, these thugs who are just basically in a gang. (laughs) And he's trying to say, no, stop being gang members and join the army. Join the army. And what he means is, lay down your agenda and take up mine. Give me your allegiance and your loyalty. Join the, join the troops and let's march into battle together. But you know how he says it? He says it like this. Repent and believe in me. That's what he tells them to do. And he's not preaching the gospel. <laughs> Excuse me. He's not preaching the gospel to these brigands. He doesn't believe the gospel. He know, he's heard of Jesus. He writes about him in his history book. But he's not a Christian. What's he doing? He's recruiting soldiers to fight for the nation. Repent and believe in me means lay down your agenda and take up mine. Lay down what you're doing and join the troops. Give me your allegiance. Trust in me. Rely on me. Come follow me as the general into battle. That's what's happening here. To believe in his name, to put faith in a name, is a pledge of allegiance. It's a declaration of reliance. It's an oath sworn to the one who has that name. Biblical faith is confident trust that includes a commitment. Those guys had to trust Josephus before they joined the ranks. They had to trust him, believe him, and then they had to go fight where he said to go fight to take his orders Biblical faith, he used the exact same language Jesus does for becoming a Christian, for becoming his disciple. That's what biblical faith is. It's confident trust that includes a commitment where you leave the old life behind and you take up this new one. You're taking orders from a new general, a new Lord. Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus like this everyone who makes this faith commitment, everyone who pledges their allegiance to Jesus becomes a child of God. That is how it happens. It happens by faith. You become a child of God by faith and by faith alone. And if it's by faith and not by works, it means it's a pure gift. It's pure gift. It's not something you have by nature. It's not something you have by right. It's not something you're entitled to. It is a gift that you just simply receive. Right? You don't do anything on Christmas morning to get those presents. You just get them. <laughs> They're just given. And here is the great gift of Christmas and Advent, that Jesus gives us the gift of being what he is, a child of God. 
What does that mean for us? Last point this morning. What does it mean for us? John explains what it means to be a child of God in verse 13. He says it means we are born of God. But he explains what that means by telling us what it does not mean to be born of God. Look at verse 13. He says a lot of knots, three knots here in verse 13. He says we we become children of God, verse 13, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. What does he mean? Not by blood means not by natural descent or by a bloodline. You don't become God's child by a genealogy, by being physically born into a family. As Paul says, it's the, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So it's not by natural descent, it's not by bloodline, it's not by any physical trait or characteristic. So your background, your race, your ethnicity, your country of origin, just anything physical that we can use to divide people up into categories just goes out the window when it comes to being a child of God. It just doesn't matter, doesn't count, it's not even considered. It's not by blood, it's not by race, it's not by family tree or lineage. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not by this natural reproductive process. The tendency or disposition of our bodies to reproduce, the be fruitful and multiply of Genesis 1, this is not that process. It's no physical process or natural reproductive process at all. It's not by blood. It's not by a natural process. And then number three, it's not of the will of man. And that word man is not the word for a human being, it's, the, it's a, a male human being. It's the word specifically for a biological man. It is the word for, it's also translated as a husband. And so that's the point here. It's not by bloodline, it's not by any natural reproductive process, and it's not by a man's decision to start a family. It's not anybody's choice, it's not any physical process, it's not by natural descent. All that's ruled out. It is a miraculous birth by the power of God. It is a spiritual birth where Jesus says you must be born again by water and by the Spirit. There is no human agency involved in being born of God because it is a spiritual birth where we come forth into the light of the world and emerge into this new reality of being in the family of God. It means, Christian, that your spiritual DNA is altered into the likeness of God. We join a family tree, but it's the family tree of all true believers throughout all history. That history of the Word, everyone who received it became a child of God. That's your family tree now. That's why you can call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob your ancestors, because you're part of God's family a family of faith. You're a new creature remade in His image. You are a new son or daughter brought into the family. And most important, you get to share fully in Jesus' relationship with His Father. Verse 12 says, God gave us the right to become God's children. That means it's grace. It's granted. It's given. It's not natural and not entitled, as I said. 
God graciously gives us the right to enjoy His fatherhood. We are adopted as full sons and daughters of God, and we get to know the love and goodness of a perfect heavenly Father. The light has come into the world, and it's available to you right where you sit. It's available to you. The history of the Word in the world continues as Jesus continues to shine His light on each one of us. And He gives you this gift to know God. And that is eternal life, knowing Him, being God's son or daughter, being in the family of faith, being adopted, being loved by a perfect Father. This is the gift, the greatest gift Jesus came to give. As great as forgiveness of sins is... It's not the main thing. Forgiveness of sins is just getting this junk out of the way so we can have a relationship with God through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. That's the gift that Jesus came to give. And the only question is, this Christmas, will you receive this gift? Will you receive in faith the coming of the light, the light of Jesus, the light of the world? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your light into our darkness and for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for the coming of Christ, which fills us with joy in this Advent season as we look forward to the time when he returns. Help us to see your light. Open our eyes. Renew our hearts. Give us faith to receive this one. And may we be filled with with wonder that you are our heavenly Father and that we are yours forever, secured by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, safe in your hand. No one can pluck us out of it. So fill us with this joy and hope as we celebrate the coming of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.